Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, and we are going to look at the next passage, which is starts in verse 38, verses 38 to 42. Let's read the text and then we'll start. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You know, man's natural sinfulness and lostness are not always apparent. <clears throat> it's not always easy to determine how sinful man really is because there is in the world of men a a sort of relative goodness. There are religious, moral, good people who say that they believe in God and do kind and good things to others. In fact, sometimes certain people can even put the behavior of some Christians to shame. They have good marriages, they're hardworking, they are good citizens, they may even attend church regularly, give generously to its support, serve on its boards and committees, and teaching Sunday school, and all of that causes people to ask, well, how could such obviously good people be spiritually depraved and lost? But ultimately, the sinfulness of man is always revealed under one condition. And, in, and at that point, it becomes unavoidable and explicit. Uh, the sinfulness of man is clearly seen when a person comes face to face with Jesus Christ. At that point, there can be no hiding it. Uh, no matter what the individual's life is like, it is unmasked for its sinful reality in a confrontation with Jesus Christ. The sin issue becomes crystallized when a person is forced to face Christ. That's the crux of the revelation of man's sinfulness. Now, no matter what a person's outward life is like, his innate spiritual nature and his true attitude towards God are seen with absolute certainty in his attitude towards Jesus Christ. The person who rejects Christ is dead spiritually and an enemy of God, no matter what religious profession they may make or how morally and selfless they may appear to live. Uh, the issue of sin becomes purpose, perfectly focused when a person confronts Christ and the crux of damning sin is rejection of him. Jesus said in John 16, 9, that people are convicted of sin because they do not believe in me. When Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover before his betrayal and crucifixion, Israel's unbelief and rejection had reached its climax. Uh, the plans for his death had already been set in motion, and as Jesus spoke to the dis disciples on that occasion, he gave them wonderful insights and promises to encourage them and strengthen them after he was gone. And one of the things he promised them was that there would be difficulty, that the world would hate them because it hated him. 
And then he moved on to talk about the people who rejected him. And in John 15, 22, he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He was referring to the Jewish leaders who appeared on the surface to be holy. They were certainly very religious. Uh, they appeared to others to be righteous. They appeared to love God and obey God and keep His law and uphold His word. They were the most religious people in the world at that time as far as their world was concerned. And no one really knew how utterly vile and sinful they actually were because they wore the mask of religion so well. But when Jesus came and they were confronted with him, their rejection of the living Son of God immediately revealed how sinful they were no matter what else they pretended to be. And so Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He calls them a brood of snakes. He calls them thieves and robbers and hypocrites and evil perverted men. He curses them over and over again in Matthew 23. And the real evil of their hearts would never have come to the surface if Jesus hadn't shown up. And, but by what they did in rejecting him, turning on him, hating him, and ultimately taking his life, they demonstrated the true character of their evil hearts. In fact, in John 15, 23, Jesus says, He who hates me hates my Father also. The truth about them is revealed. They don't truly love God. In fact, they hate God. Because if they love God, they would have loved Jesus because he is God. In verse 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Now, what that passage is saying is this. When you come face to face with Jesus Christ, you may have hidden your sin very well for a long time. But if you reject Jesus Christ, at that point, the mask is off and the truth is out. To reject him is to reject truth and to despise him is to despise righteousness. No matter what you appear to be on the surface, you are a vile, wretched sinner as evidenced by your rejection of Jesus Christ. The heart of evil is unveiled in confrontation with Christ. Now we see, we find the same thing in Matthew 12. What we see is that the Pharisees had kept up the charade, the facade, the hypocrisy, that they were righteous people who loved God and his word. And the masquerade was very successful until Jesus showed up. And the same thing is true today in many ways. There are many religious people who seem to go along very well with their religious masquerade and still some, until someone confronts them with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they reject it, the truth is evident. They don't love God at all. All of the cults, the Mormons, the, the JWs, the others who appear righteous and good and holy and obedient and religious, they, they, to all these laws that they claim God has given them, they, they may verbally praise God and honor Jesus and often have high standards of morality. But when you confront them with Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures, his claims to unique sonship and his unique sacrifice for sin, and you give them the truth of the gospel, all of a sudden the hypocrisy is revealed. The mask is off. They don't love God. They hate God. They despise God because they hate his son as presented in God's word. The same thing occurs 
in the liberal churches. People in those churches talk about the Bible, albeit at arm's length, as well as politics and book reviews and and social problems and psychological problems, and they reject the Bible's clear truths about any issue that doesn't fit with their own preconceived ideas and desires, such as homosexuality, gender issues, husband-wife relationships, uh, male authority in the church. So when you walk in and introduce the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the mask is off because it becomes clear that they don't love God or His Son. That's always the revealer. So Jesus had effectively stripped off the scribes and Pharisees' masks. He had stripped naked, if you will, the Pharisees and the Jewish people and shown them to be vile, wretched sinners. Now that didn't sit too well with them, as you can imagine. They weren't really thrilled about that. And so by the time we come to Matthew 12, they, have hard, they are hardened in their rejection of Christ. They have seen him, they have heard him teach, seen his miracles, seen the character and quality of his life, experienced his power, and yet their conclusion is, number one, he is a Sabbath breaker, and number two, he is satanic. He's a satanic Sabbath breaker. By that conclusion, that verdict about Jesus, they revealed their evil hearts. They reveal that they don't love God. You can't reject Jesus Christ and love God. You, can, you either hate both of them or you love both of them because they are one and the same. And so they have already revealed their hearts. And each time they say that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, they do it in public, of course. Uh, they're trying to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. They want to hold on to their power and position in Judaism. They were sitting at the top of the religious pile. Uh, they love the acclaim of men. They love to sit in the chief places and be called rabbi and all of that. As Matthew 23 says, they love, love to be on top. They love to have everyone's respect and be thought of as holy and sanctimonious and pious. And so they want to maintain their power and control and dominance over the people. So when the people become attracted to Jesus, they feel they must discredit him publicly before the people so that they can maintain that place of supremacy. So they accuse Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker. They do it publicly. And by the time the accusation is over, he rebukes them. He says, you don't understand your own scriptures. You don't understand the Sabbath. And least of all, do you understand that I am the Lord of the Sabbath? So they attack him a second time. And they, this time they say he's not only a Sabbath breaker, but he's satanic. He turns it right back around on them and says that kind of accusation is absurd. It's prejudiced. It's rebellious. It betrays your evil hearts. And you will be damned for it because you're beyond the point of repentance and forgiveness. You will never be forgiven. So each time they attack him, they lose. But they have one final shot. They're trying to discredit him in the face of the people. And so they have this final attack. It's the high point of their rejection. It's the full final full-fledged rejection of Christ by Israel. And so as Matthew comes to a conclusion in chapter 12, the words that Jesus speaks are words of judgment. And the, the occasion is their last attack, and he turns it into a speech about their judgment. Now keep in mind, they really aren't interested in anything he says or does. They're only trying to make him look bad in the eyes of the people. That's why they accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. That's why they accused him of being satanic, because they could see people beginning to turn to him. And now they have one more shot to discredit him. 
And their goal is to prove he's an imposter and a deceiver. And so they make a final request of him. And he gives a final decree to them. So let's come first to their final request. Look again at verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now remember they had just been devastated by Jesus' attack. He had said something to them that was beyond anything they could have imagined that they would hear. In verses 31 and 32, what did he tell them? He said that they, they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and they could never be forgiven for that in this age or any age in the future. He just told them they were rotten trees with rotten fruit, that they were a brood of vipers, that they were speaking evil with evil hearts. He told them their evil, by their evil words they'd be damned. So he had spoken as strongly as possible. And they're trying at this point to keep their cool because if they blow it right there, they're going to lose their reputation in front of the people. So they're probably retreated at this point to try to figure a strategy out as to how they might come back with an attack that will ultimately discredit him. They may have realized that they look like losers, and so they have to give one more shot. They've got to get on top of this one-upmanship approach. And so verse 38 says, some of them came back. This is probably a specially appointed committee who were prepared with the right approach and who represented the whole snake pit of Pharisees and scribes. Uh, they were the lawyers. To be a scribe, you had to be at least 30 years old and to have spent many years of intensive study in the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly the Torah, the, which was the law, and the Talmud, the collection of rabbinic traditions. They were recognized as authorized experts in the law, those who were able to understand and interpret and apply the law of God. And so here they come, the recognized experts, and they sent along some of the Pharisees with them. Some of them may have been both a scribe and a Pharisee. And they say, what do they call him? Teacher. They're betraying their own hypocrisy there. They're trying to come off as pious. They're trying to come off as sanctimonious. They want to keep their reputation in front of the people. So in their hypocrisy, for the people's sake, they acknowledge Jesus in a way that the people seem to perceive him as a teacher, a rabbi. It was a title of great respect. Uh, it was a title reserved for one who knew the law, who could teach the law, who was considered an authority on the law. And so they say, teacher. And it just drips with hypocrisy. They didn't respect him at all. They despised him. But they nonetheless try to keep up their reputation. So they give him this request. We want to see a sign from you. Now, the very implication of the question is important because the people would have perceived this differently than you would if you just read it. You see, when a scribe came in, uh, came in an official assembly of scribes and Pharisees, to ask a question like this of a man like Jesus, the question would carry tremendous weight. The, the people would feel it was a question attached to a scribal understanding of the law. Uh, in other words, if they were asking this of Jesus, then it, this must be what the law requires of him. In other words, the assumption would be that the scribes must have determined from the law that if he is the Messiah, he should do a sign. So that's what they thought probably, that this was 
a very official question. We want to see a sign, a request. The, the people then are being told that this guy, when they hear this, they're going to, what that says communicates to the average person is this guy hasn't yet sufficiently validated his claim to be the Messiah. And so there needs to be a sign to be done. <coughs> so this amounted to an official demand for Jesus to prove himself to be the Messiah. Now, what kind of sign are they asking for? I mean, there's been healing after healing after healing, casting out demons, transformation of lives, salvation, forgiveness of sin. What more could they ask for than the thousands and thousands of miracles they've already seen? Well, there's really a simple answer. Go over to chapter 16, Matthew 16 for a minute, and you'll find a parallel situation there. They came back to him with the same question again, and they got the same answer. We know it's parallel because the terms are all the same. But this time we get a little more insight into the kind of thing they're asking for. Verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now the sign is to be from heaven. And so he says, verse 2, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? <coughs> They're asking for a sign from heaven. So he starts talking about the sky and all of that sort of meteorology and all that sort of thing. And then he says in verse 4, an evil... An adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Now go back to chapter 12. They come to him in verse 38, and they say, we want to see a sign. And it says in verse 39, and he answered them and said, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. You ask the same question, you get the same answer. That's my point. It's this when they said, we want to see a sign. I think they wanted a sign from heaven. I think that's what they wanted. The Jews were always wanting to see a sign. They always wanted to see some sort of supernatural verification of everything. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.22, the apostle Paul says, Jews ask for signs. It was characteristic of them to expect certain wonders to prove that a man was a messenger from God. I think that's one reason why God gave that ability to the apostles and those who worked with them. They were able to do signs and wonders and mighty deeds because that was the expectation level of the Jews. Prove yourself by doing something extraordinary. There were all kinds of fallacious Jewish traditions about a certain rabbi named Eliezer who supposedly did miracles to validate the authority of his teachings. And those kind of stories just indicate the typical Jewish mentality. They were always seeking signs and miracles to validate someone's message. But in this case, they wanted more than just another miracle. Uh, after all, they had seen signs and sign, upon signs. But they wanted one from heaven, or perhaps more accurately, a sign in the heavens. Uh, they wanted a spectacular display of control over the celestial fear. I, I mean, I'm, I think they would have liked to have seen him make the sun stand still, as it did for Joshua in Joshua 10. Or they would have liked to have seen him rearrange the constellations or have the moon go racing across the sky or 
something strange like that. They, they would have loved to have seen Joel's prophecy come to pass and have him turn the moon as red as blood and darken the sun. But do you know why they requested a sign from him? Because they didn't believe he could do it. And they wanted to discredit him in front of the people when he couldn't. That was their whole intent. And then they could say to the people, you see, if he was really the Messiah, he could do that. They did it to embarrass him, to discredit him. They not only didn't believe in him, they not only blasphemed him, but they wanted to embarrass and discredit him in front of everyone so that no one would believe in him. They have now not only personally rejected and personally blasphemed, but they now take on the ministry of getting everyone else to reject him. So that's their ploy. They're impudent, they're insulting, they're hypocritical. Yes, ma'am. When you look at the history of the Jews, there were so many signs that God gave them. And All through their history. Yes, so I could, I could understand why they would want us. I mean, he gave plenty of signs. And I, I Going all the way back to getting them out of Egypt. Yes, yes. Yeah. yes. And then all the, throughout their history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All kinds of things. They always want a sign. Verse 39, here's his reply. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. In other words, he says the only kind of people who want that kind of a show are evil and adulterous. The implication being, if you were really united to God in the way that you were originally supposed to be united with him as his wife in the covenant, If you had been faithful to God, you wouldn't need that kind of thing. But you manifest adultery of your hearts and even seeking such. He characterizes the entire Jewish nation of his day. And he says, you're adulterous. You've created a breach in the covenant relationship with God, which is seen in the Old Testament as a marriage bond. You've violated your vows. You've followed after false deities. There had been a period in their history in which they were idolatrous. And at that point, their harlotries were committed with idols. When you have a couple of minutes sometime, read Isaiah 57. The the prophet just shreds them with the strongest terms for their adulteries and harlotries with the false gods of the pagans. (coughs) And in Jeremiah 3, verse uh, 6 6 to 10, Uh, Jeremiah condemns them for their harlotry and adultery with false idols. He does it again in Jeremiah 13, 27. Ezekiel 16 is a similar indictment of Israel for its harlotry with other gods. The story of Hosea and his wife Gomer is a picture of Israel's adulterous relationship with other gods. That was the history of the Israelite people. But although... After the Babylonian captivity, they were no longer idolatrous in the sense of worshiping the idols of the gods of the Canaanites and the other people. They were just as idolatrous and adulterous for their worshiping their man-made, traditional, legalistic system of self-righteousness. They had still abandoned the true worship of God for false worship by a legalistic system that promoted their own egos. And so Jesus says, anyone who seeks such a sign gives visible evidence of being a part of those 
who have abandoned God in their covenant with him. You're a nation of adulterers and adulteresses, and that is obvious because you seek a sign. You don't even know God or you would need no sign. And then he says this, no sign will be given to it. It's not, it was not possible for Jesus to do the kind of miracle that the scribes and Pharisees wanted, but not for the reason that they thought. It wasn't that he didn't have the ability. He most certainly had the ability. Listen, he was the one who created the heavens and all that's in them. Uh, he could have rearranged them anytime he wanted to. And if you ever wonder about that, just read the book of Revelation. And you'll see that one day uh, he will change the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth in dramatic ways. So from the viewpoint of his power and ability, he could have done it. But he didn't do it from the moral, couldn't do it from the moral viewpoint because Jesus Christ is not in the, ability, in the business of bending to the whims of those who want no relationship with him. It's morally impossible to grant such to those who hate Christ. Look what he says next. He says, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, what does that mean? Well, we all remember the story of Jonah, don't we? Uh, we? God told him to go to Nineveh, preach about the coming judgment. If they didn't repent, he says, I don't want to go to Nineveh uh, because I know God. If I go there and they repent, God's going to forgive them and relent from punishing them. And I don't want that. I want that. I want God to blast them. <clears throat> so instead, he takes a boat and goes in the opposite direction. God sends a storm. The boat's about to sink. He finally admits to the crew, that, look, the problem is me. Throw me overboard. So they threw him overboard. God sent a great fish to swallow him up. He's in the belly of the fish for three days trying to, uh, trying to digest a disobedient prophet would make anything sick. And so the fish vomited him up on the shore. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches as God commanded. The whole place repented in sackcloth and ashes. And God spared his judgment. Now, Jesus says, this generation will not be given a sign except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, what was that? What is the sign of Jonah the prophet? Look at verse 40. It tells us, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign. It's a prophecy. Now, keep this in mind. In the Old Testament, there are two types of prophecy regarding the Messiah. One type is called verbally predictive prophecy, in which a statement is made about something that's going to come to pass. They are specific and sometimes detailed predictions. For example, Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Jeremiah 23.5 and 6 it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh our righteousness. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. It's going forth or from everlasting from the ancient days. Those are all examples of verbally predictive prophecies that pointed to Christ. But there's a second type of prophecy. And it's what's known as 
typological predictive prophecy. That is, it is a prophecy presented in the form of a type in which someone or something in the Old Testament foreshadows the person or work of Christ. Now listen carefully, this is important. We can only be certain about typological predictive prophecy if they are specifically identified as such in the New Testament. For example, Abel's blood is identified in Hebrews 12.24 as foreshadowing Christ's blood. Uh, 1 Peter 3.20-21 says Noah's ark was a type of Christ saving some from God's judgment. Hebrews 7.3 tells us that Melchizedek was a type of Christ as our high priest. Hebrews 11.17-19 records that Isaac was a type of Christ in that he was to be sacrificed like a lamb and rescued from death. The book of Hebrews repeatedly presents the Old Testament sacrificial system as foreshadowing the substitutionary sacrificial death of Christ and explains how his sacrifice far exceeded the value and efficacy of those Old Testament animal sacrifices. And so too, the story of Jonah, while it doesn't verbally predict anything about Christ, it functions as a typological predictive prophecy about Christ's resurrection. Now, as I said, the only time you know that you have an Old Testament type is when it is stated to be such in the New Testament. There are a lot of people going around finding what they consider to be types behind every bush in the Old Testament, but many of them are not. <clears throat> In fact, their interpretations are often quite allegorical in nature. <clears throat> and any time that you must use an allegorical interpretation about something in the scriptures, uh, about something that the scriptures do not make perfectly clear, you're on dangerous interpretive ground. Let me give you an example. I realize I'm chasing a bunny here, but I want you to understand this clearly so you don't fall into the, a trap of reading this kind of thing and thinking, wow, that's deep theology. <laughs> I read this one as I was studying for this lesson. The author claims that Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was a type of the church, the bride of Christ. Now, as background, and to shorten this up a bit, Understand that he also has a whole interpretive scheme in which he develops Abraham's servant Eliezer, who was sent to find a wife for Isaac to be a type of the Holy Spirit. And after using all kinds of allegorical interpretation to develop that idea, he goes on to claim that Rebecca is a type of the church. Now remember that Paul said in Ephesians 3 that the church was a mystery that was not revealed during Old Testament times but was revealed to him and the apostles by the Holy Spirit in New Testament times. But this guy claims to have found the church hidden in the Old Testament and that it's symbolized by Rebecca. Listen to this. Please don't believe this. Okay? This is theological mumbo-jumbo that I'm about to read to you. This is not how to interpret types in the Old Testament. First he says, as Rebekah believed and yielded to the pleadings of Eliezer, so the church believes and yields to the pleadings of the Holy Spirit. Second, 
As Rebekah was willing to separate herself from her kinfolk for Isaac's sake, so the believer is willing to separate himself from his kinfolk for Jesus' sake. Third, as Eliezer, on the way back to Isaac, told Rebekah all about his master Isaac and what was in store for her, so also as we journey on our earthly pilgrimage, the Holy Spirit tells us what is in store for us when we shall meet our Isaac, Jesus. Fourth, as Rebekah was a Gentile bride, so the church of Christ is a Gentile bride. Now note, he explains that one by saying that since Abraham was the first Jew, that means all of his kinfolk were Gentiles, and since Rebekah was one of them, she was a Gentile. Fifth, as Rebekah did not have to pass through any tribulation before she left her home to go to Isaac, so the church will not have to pass through the tribulation before meeting Jesus. Sixth, as Isaac left his home and went out into the field to meet Rebekah, so Jesus will descend from heaven to meet his bride, the church, in the air. And finally, as it was eventide when Isaac met Rebekah, so it will be eventide of this dispensation when Jesus meets his church. Now, folks, that is a classic case of allegorical interpretation. That is turning the scriptures into some kind of mystical book with hidden messages, sort of like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. There is nothing whatsoever in the New Testament that supports the ideas that this guy's promoting here. Sadly, the author was a well-known evangelical pastor in the early 20th century. He was well-known for his large wall charts that were used in churches to teach Bible prophecy from a dispensational perspective. Now, we here at Lakeside are dispensational premillennialists, but we don't hold to many of the ideas that those early dispensationalists held to. Their, their views were often so strange that they gave dispensationalism a bad name in Christendom. And this kind of typological interpretation is an example why many people rejected dispensationalism, thinking that all dispensationalists hold to such strange interpretations of Scripture. As I said, if there is an Old Testament type, you can only know that it's a type if the New Testament tells you that. And in the case of Jonah in the belly of the fish, that's exactly what we have because that's what Jesus tells us. Now let me just pause and take a breath here before we move on to the text. No, that, that's a hermeneutical principle that all Bible teachers or students of the Bible should know. I mean, that... Um, about the typological. We should know that types, you only know if a type is in the Old Testament if you find it stated as such in the New Testament. That, that's, that's at the base level. Okay. You ought to know that. Yes, yes. That has sadly not always been the case, as I just gave you an example. And sadly, there's still people who do this. They twist scripture. That's one of the reasons why uh, we don't hold to some of the the, we don't hold to the reformed, reformed view on eschatology because they do the same thing. They, they, they take the New Testament and read back, read the Old Testament from the New Testament. You can't do that. You've got to look at the Old Testament for what it is and then progressive revelation to the New Testament. But they, they reverse it. And that's where they come up with those strange allegorical interpretations in eschatology. And sadly, the early dispensationalists did the same thing. So, 
Well, let's get back to our text in Matthew 12:40. Jesus says that the story of Jonah was a prophecy. It was just as much a prophecy as Isaiah 53. It was a predictive prophecy given in picture rather than in word. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It looked like the end of Jonah, but it wasn't. It looked like the end of Jesus, but it wasn't. Uh, Jonah was buried in the depths. Jesus was buried in the depths. Jonah came out. Jesus came out. It was a picture of the resurrection. It was three days for Jonah. It was three days for Jesus. It was a perfect picture. Now, there's a couple of matters I want to deal with here. The first is that was this. Jesus obviously believed the story of Jonah. That's significant. Some liberal commentators have tried to say that just because Jesus refers to Jonah doesn't mean he really believed the story was true. Folks, you may want to believe that because Jonah was, you may want to believe that because Jonah was so hard hearted and stubborn. He told a big lie about his experience. But it's often awfully difficult to believe that Jesus, being God and being omniscient, would have been in complicity with such a lie. Uh, it would have also made him a liar too. Uh, and since Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie, and since Jesus is God and he said that that was the story, then that was the story. Jesus validates the authenticity of Jonah's story. Second, let me mention that the term here, which the Legacy Standard Bible and the New American Standard Bible translate as sea monster. The ESV and the NIV have great fish or huge fish. Uh, some people say it was a whale. Others say it was a large shark. There are a couple of large sea creatures in the Mediterranean Sea that would be quite capable of swallowing a man. There's the fin whale and the basking shark. But scripture doesn't specify what the creature was. It says only sea monster or great fish. So we don't really know what specific kind of fish it was. It may have been a special fish that God prepared for just that occasion. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. But whatever it was, it was big enough for Jonah to spend three days and three nights balled up in his stomach with seaweed wrapped around his head. And that's, an, well, that's in Jonah 2.5. That's another thing we need to mention. When we say three days and three nights, and people always seem to have problems with that, because they say, well, you see, if Jonah was there three days and three nights, that's a total of 72 hours. And that would mean Jesus had to be on the cross uh, or in the grave for 72 hours. Uh, so he must have been crucified on Wednesday and not Friday before the Passover, like the Bible says. So that means that either Jesus got it wrong about how long he would be dead, or the Bible writers got it wrong. Well, neither of those is a problem because the phrase, <clears throat> a day and a night, was commonly used to refer to any part of a 24-hour period. Uh, that's how the Jews used it all the time. In their thinking, any part of the day was counted as a day and a night. Uh, so Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were three days and three nights in their system of counting days and nights. Even though from our perspective, there were only parts of two days, Friday and Sunday, and one full day Saturday, and two full nights, Friday and Saturday, that Jesus was in the tomb. So, but that, so when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus on a Friday, just before sundown, it counted as a day and a night in their system. And when he arose on the third day, Sunday, it counted as a day and a night. It was simply the way they expressed that kind of time period. 
In fact, unless they used a very rare and obscure term, which is only used one time in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 11.25 to refer to an actual 24-hour period, it was normal for them to use the phrase a day and a night to refer to any portion of a 24-hour period. And since that word is not used here in Matthew 12, we know that Matthew is using the normal Jewish term. And to quote the Talmud on this, it says, any part of one is as the whole. Okay? So the Jewish Talmud says that. So Jonah was in the fish for some part of three days, just as the Lord was in the heart of the earth, some part of three days, not necessarily the whole 72 hours. To bring up to today, for example, if you said, I went to Orlando and I was only there for a day, does that mean you got up there immediately? You got there immediately when the sun rose and you didn't leave until it set? Or does that necessarily mean you stayed a full 24 hours? No, you could say you were there for a day. We could think you were there for 24 hours or that you were there for just a few hours. Uh, in other words, the term day doesn't necessarily force you into a 24-hour period. And in Jewish thought, neither does the term a day and a night force you into the 24-hour period. It's a simply a term to designate any portion of the day. And so then Joseph's experience of coming back alive out of the fish after three days and nights becomes a picture of Jesus being resurrected after three days and nights in the tomb. That's the sign. Jesus says, no sign will be given except my resurrection. That's the last sign. After that, we don't read of Jesus doing any miracles. Oh, in his glorified body, he could appear and seemingly disappear. But as far as actually performing miracles of healing and <coughs> casting out demons and all that sort of thing after the resurrection, he did not do those. His resurrection was the last sign. Now, I may I add that it didn't help the situation. It was clearly a sign from heaven because no one could raise the dead but God. And yet Jesus was right when he said in Luke 16, 31, that if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And they didn't believe. In fact, the Jewish leaders actually paid a Roman soldiers to lie about what happened. They didn't believe. That was the last sign. And when they rejected it, that was the coup de grace. That was over. That was it. You see, when we are confronted with the living Christ in his death and resurrection from the dead, then the matter of destiny will be determined. And if you turn your back then, no matter how religious you appear to be, no matter how holy you try to be, you show yourself to be a vile sinner who hates God because of what you do with Jesus Christ. That was the only sign they could ever see, and they showed their true sinfulness in the face of that sign. You know, we live on this side of the resurrection. There has never been another society that has heard the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ more than our society. We have Easter every year during which it is celebrated. The Western world knows that that's what it is about. In fact, in the latest survey conducted uh, just last year, 66% of Americans said the story of Jesus' resurrection is true and actually happened. And yet, the majority of them see little, if any, connection with their daily lives, uh, which tells me that they aren't truly believers or they would understand that it is, death, it is his death and resurrection that proves that he is God who conquered sin and death in order to bring eternal life to those who trust him. 
And so while they may appear to love God, the truth is they reject Christ and his resurrection and they're showing themselves to be liars. They are an evil and adulterous generation. They don't love God. They hate God. You see, when you come to Christ, the disguise comes off. John 15, 23. What you do with him is the determining factor. So that was their final request for a spectacular sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you that type of spectacular sign that you're looking for, but I'll give you one final sign, my own resurrection. And then he gives them his final decree, but you're going to have to wait for that until next week. We will finish that up, this, this section up, and then we will start moving into the next section. Before we go, any other questions, comments? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They knew it. Yes. They knew that he said that, yes, yes. and yet they rejected that. They rejected. It. Any other comments or questions? I hope you learned something today. Did you learn anything today? Yes. Good. John 15, 27, 23. John 15, 23. Okay. Anything else? None? Let's close with prayer. Oh, here's one. My mother has a friend. Uh-huh. Her husband was a retired pastor. They went to the same church, and I call her from time to time so that they can talk. And she loves the Lord, and, I, you know, we pray together. And I've talked to her a couple of times, I, twice. Once we were talking, and I said something about abortion, and it was like, she's a former nurse. And she defended abortion, and just like that just blew my mind. How she could say, and just last week, we talked, and she was talking about her children who are in school, and I said, well, what grades are they in? And she said, and, and then I, and I said, it's really, I said, we really have to be careful guarding our children, because children learn, they get confused about their gender, and all of the gender trans, you know, transgender stuff doesn't happen until they into the school system and I said that is one of the one of the evils of our you know our education system and she was really quiet she had nothing to say and I thought wow she is not that as you know I mentioned something about how they confused about God created them male mm -hmm. and female and yet they're you know yep. this happens in the school system and yet she loves she says she loves the Lord and I know that she she believes in Christ, but that just really burdens my heart that she holds to such uh, <coughs> wicked, you know, just things in our, our evil system mm -hmm. that are not true and are contrary to scripture, and yet she embraces those. Yeah. I see it all the time. Yeah. It's, yes. I think sometimes, I mean, we all know this, but when you go to church and they pick the passages that they want to talk about, pastors, um, then you can skip all these controversial things of society and, and where we uh, go right straight to it to learn from them. They're um, the, the views that you just talked about are very common in the 
progressive liberal churches. And, uh, um, and then the, the uh, allegorical interpretation that I talked about is very common in your, uh, shall I say, your rural southern white churches and your black churches. Very common system of interpreting scripture. Uh, it is, but it's not biblical when you start having to find stuff that isn't there. So, okay. Well, let's close with prayer.